My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Leon Bicey, who is professor of flute at Rice University Shepherd School of Music. She played with the Boston Symphony Orchestra for many years, as well as the San Francisco Symphony and the Rochester. Is it actually Philharmonic? And the Rochester Philharmonic. She's performed all over the world, including a place called Canada, which I've never heard of, with groups ranging from the Juilliard and Muir String Quartets to Camera of Houston. She's also played with Yo-Yo Ma. She performs with her husband, clarinetist Michael Webster, who's been on the Classical Classroom before, um, as the Bicey Webster Duo and the Webster Trio. She's frankly done more and been awarded more than I have time to mention in this intro Leon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Daisha. I'm very happy to be here. So what are you going to be teaching me about today? We are going to learn about Johann Sebastian Bach's suite in B minor for flute and strings. Okay. Okay, this is exciting. And I also thought unusual. I remember we've had one other show, uh, I think just one other show, where we focused on flute. Um with uh, Joel Lukes from Mm -hmm. Culture Map. And he talked about the fact that there, like early on, there weren't a lot of pieces written specifically for flute. And I know Bach is really early. And so I was like, well, that's interesting. It is interesting because the recorder was played a lot in the 1600s and 1700s. But then we have what is called the Baroque flute or the traverso, meaning that the flute was played off to the side. Uh So in French, that would be la flute traversière, and we just refer to it as a traverso, and it didn't have keys the way a modern flute would. It had perhaps just one key or sometimes two. So it was much more awkward to play, Mm -hmm. and the intonation on the instrument was not as solid as it is on our modern keyed instruments. I see. So you're talking about like specifically what Bach was writing for. Correct. This, this instrument was like physically different than the flute that we know today. Very much so. For one thing, it was wood. And although there are some beautiful modern wooden instruments uh, in existence today, and some wonderful players use them, the metal flute is still more the norm today. Okay. I'm curious how a piece written for an instrument that's physically different translates to a modern flute. Do you play it on a modern Yes, Yes. and I'm so glad you brought this up because it does pose a very interesting uh, question for all of us who play silver flutes or gold flutes or platinum flutes. It 
it really raises the question of do we use a modern sound? Mm-hmm. Vibrato is part of a flutist's color palette in this day and age, and most flutists use vibrato rather consistently. Mm-hmm. However, it was it was not commonly used in the Baroque era, which huh. can be defined as 1600, roughly until 1750. And there was another technique used for a long note called flattement in French, in which you actually raised your, your fingers above the holes on the flute, which, which made the oh. different pitches, and it gave a kind of ah sound. Huh. So it's, it's fascinating, and it's just very different. And some people have said to me, oh, you're not going to play it really like the old flute, are you? And I don't think we should be afraid of, of exploring the differences. The old flute. <laughs> well, okay, so this, this piece, what, what makes it stand out to you? First of all, it is really a chamber work. The flute is alternately part of the texture, mm-hmm. doubling the first violins, and then has some solo uh passages, almost like a concerto grosso. But it's not... Oh, wait, wait, what's a concerto grosso? A concerto grosso is where there is a big component of instruments playing, and then there would be, called the the tutti, and then there would be solo passages as well. So the texture is varied, and it's, it's really interesting. Okay. Gotcha. So this this suite is very typical of suites in the Baroque era, mm-hmm. which included stylistic dances. The French court was looked at as being something to really revere, and most of the movements in this suite come from French music. For example, the first movement, the overture, starts with a slow section mm-hmm. and then has a fast middle section that's very fugal, and I can explain that in oh, a yeah. minute, and then at the end uh, returns to a slow section. Following the overture, we have a rondo, mm-hmm. spelled in the French way, R-O-N-D-E-A-U, which is essentially a gavotte, another French court uh, dance. Okay. The sarabande was also from the French court, although it developed in the Iberian Peninsula in the 1400s. Then we have a pair of bourrées, a polonaise, which is from Poland, but very stylish with a double in the middle. I'll I'll talk about this more when we get to those movements. A double meaning a variation Mm -hmm. on the melody. Then a minuet. And lastly, a bedinnery, which I think most of our listeners may recognize. Very fast, very brilliant, and a wonderful, fun way to end the suite. Wow. That's all in this that's all in this piece. Yes, and that's wow. part of the appeal. Such wide variety and as I just mentioned, the fact that you are alternately in the texture adding a color and then stepping forward as a solo voice. Wow. Neat. Okay. 
And I'm not sure I've actually defined what the word sweet is for you in the Baroque. Because no. we think about the nutcracker sweet or the, a sweet from the opera Carmen, and that's the more, more recent uh, meaning of sweet. In other words, a group of pieces extracted from a larger work. Okay. From a ballet, from an opera. But in the Baroque era, it actually meant a series of instrumental pieces that were to be heard in one setting and that were all in the same key. And it comes oh, wow. from the French. Yes, it comes from the French meaning in succession or those that follow. So mm-hmm. we have here all of these these movements that I've mentioned, the overture, the rondo, the sarabande, the bourrées, etc., all in B minor. Mm-hmm. And that's a rather important distinction to make between the Nutcracker Suite and Bach Suite. Yeah, that's that's very different. So, I mean, a more sort of contemporary interpretation of that word can just be essentially a chunk mm-hmm. of, of, a, of a symphony or something that you sort of... Is kind of standalone. Yes, um, whereas usually, mm-hmm. in the in the Baroque, it's very very different sort of technical definition for yes. what suite, yes. like constitutes a suite. Exactly, gotcha. an okay. entity as opposed to perhaps favorite movements or favorite songs, arias okay. from an opera or uh, from a ballet. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, I think we should hear some of this piece. If, if I agree. Okay. And we're going to hear this overture now played in the way it really should be approached, I now believe. It starts with a tempo that is very upbeat and essentially a la breve, which means two beats in the bar rather than four. And the person who is is playing this particular example, his name is Bartolt Kauken. Mm -hmm. He's from Belgium and really is an extraordinary musician and traverso player. He's also a great overall musician Mm -hmm. uh, as well. So he is playing in a style that has really inspired me. You will hear lightness and lift, whereas when I was first learning it, I was thinking, one, now let's hear what Bart Kauken does. Okay. Now notice how lifted the notes are. He's not holding them out full value, and his colleagues, Hmm. the strings, are playing lightly. And what you have here is such a lilt to the music. Mm -hmm. It's not in any way overdone, but it's just so alive. And when you have long notes, there's a bit of a diminuendo. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. Now listen to this, a long note, a separation, lift off space. Now we're going into the fast section, which is fugal in nature. Second violins answering the flute and the first violin. Violas are now joining with their voice. Celli and 
bossy cellos and basses are now joining. And again, we have such lightness and lift in this performance. Now get ready, the solo section for the flute is about to begin. And let me tell you, breathing is a big challenge in this. And again, it's not held full length, but lifted off of the long notes, which gives this wonderful joie de vivre to this French overture style. The, the word fugue actually comes from uh, the, the word to chase. So you can tell how the lines are really chasing each other. Uh -huh. And the very first entrance of the subject is in the key of B minor and then the response is in the dominant in the the second violins the same idea but in F sharp minor mm -hmm. so that's that's what the fugue is and I could get very technical and talk about <laughs> tonal responses versus real responses, but I think that's enough. Yeah. So this gives you an idea yeah. of this movement. Yeah. It's it's really, um, like you said, it's very light. It's very airy. It's very, and I really like how the the combination of instruments, how they just sort of play as one. Yes. I, I was really having a hard time picking out the flute from from the as they were sort of playing together? Exactly, exactly. And when the flute has a solo line, the instruments that accompany are very much subservient and mm -hmm. simply underline a pulse. Bum, 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 mm -hmm. And so those sections truly stand out. Yeah. But I'm so happy that you appreciate the color that comes from the flute doubling the first violin in all the tutti sections when people are playing together. So this is part of Bach's genius. He took so many, so many different uh, ideas and styles and put his own stamp on them. Mm -hmm. He wrote for so many different genres. He was an organist. Did you know that actually in his lifetime he was known not as a composer as much as a virtuoso player, an no. organist? It's pretty astonishing, actually. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing. That's it's, I mean, because now he's I mean he's the the big daddy. He's, exactly. He's, you know the genius from the the Baroque era. Yeah. But he wrote for instruments, he wrote for singers, the cantatas, the oratorios and passions, all of the chorales that we mm -hmm. study in school to learn about harmony. His harmony was extraordinary, and we as music students had to study all of his amazing chord modulations. That's, I was going to ask if Bach wrote a lot for the flute. I mean, was it... Yes, okay. he did. He wrote, uh, of course, this suite, which is the second of four orchestral suites. Mm -hmm. He wrote for 
amazing sonatas. He also wrote solo, unaccompanied works mm -hmm. uh, for instruments, the violin partitas, the cello suites. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a fabulous solo partita for the flute. And there are incredible parts for the flute in cantatas. All right. Where do we go next with this, this piece? Well, I thought we'd hear just a little bit of the next movement, which is a rondo. This is a very stylized-sounding dance, and it's like a gavotte, mm -hmm. which was a, a folk dance for many centuries, but in the French court of Louis XIV became really, really stylized. And it starts with two pickup notes. It's, it's actually in two, but the pickup notes themselves have a little bit more of a feeling of definition. And again, here you will really enjoy the, the lightness of the style. We're going to hear two different interpretations. First of all, Bart Kalkin's interpretation in which he takes the, the uh, evenly written eighth notes and plays them slightly unevenly. Mm -hmm. This is a French interpretive idea, which is called inégal or unequal. So instead of is which gives it a very different feeling. Uh -huh. And we'll hear someone else, also an extraordinary musician and flutist, play a different interpretation in just a moment. Okay. I see what you mean there. Exactly. And this little section repeats. And hear the tiampa. The inegal really adds a sense of interest to it. Instead of just da 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 da. Yeah. Which is how I learned it. Is that something that would have players in in box day? Would they have played it that way? Is that is that a Many would. Okay. And the interesting thing about this is that it's not as though anything goes, but Quantz, who was a, an excellent uh, Baroque composer and a, a writer about uh, the flute, he was a, a flutist and wrote wonderful works for our instrument, he says the most important thing is good taste, mm -hmm. finding ways to interpret this music that really fit the the movements themselves, the affect, which in the Baroque meant the character. Mm -hmm. These are, are varied characters, as I'm sure you're beginning to to hear. Yeah. And speaking of, of a variety of interpretations, let's listen to the principal flutist of the Berlin Philharmonic, Emmanuel Paru, as he plays the beginning of the rondo and chooses not to use Inégal, and his tempo is slightly faster and it will be different. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah. Perfectly so fine, delightful. So different. And you'll notice that he is playing a half step higher uh -huh. than Bart Kalkin. Because in the Baroque era, pitch was lower. A, which is 
what the orchestra tunes to. If you go to an orchestra concert, you hear the the oboist play an A. It's A440. Kalkin was playing at A415. That's why Paru sounded a little bit higher when he started. See, and you said the oboe because the oboe is doesn't the whole orchestra sort of tune to the the oboe? If you go to Jones Hall and hear the Houston uh-huh. Symphony, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Oboes so powerful. Yeah. But not as powerful as the flute, of course. Exactly. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. If you hear just a little bit more of of Paru, you you hear totally even eights. Delightful. Yeah, but it's so different. Exactly. I'm so pleased that you you sense the broad possibilities here uh-huh. in interpretation. This is a wonderful recording, and he's playing with informed Baroque players, but they're using contemporary pitch. He's mm-hmm. using a gold flute. Mm-hmm. So that is Emmanuel Paru. I'm I'm just keep thinking about how, you know, you go to the, the museum, you look at a painting from this era, you get this very sort of, you know, clear picture of maybe what, what life was like then, what people were like, what what um you know, maybe the cadence of life was then that, and that kind of thing. And listening to this is just a another way of of kind of getting a glimpse into the world at the time that Bach wrote this. Absolutely. So interesting. Absolutely. You're so right. And one thing that strikes me is repeats, that people heard things a second time. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think, oh, do I really need to take that second repeat? Let's move on. Uh It's because we're so used to a faster pace of life, I, I fear. Whereas... In this in this era in the Baroque, there there were no cell phones. Yeah. There there were no jets. Everything was very much a matter of a process. People had time to listen to repeats and, and to, to savor play repeats to yeah. savor the mm. repeats exactly. Yeah. Maybe now we should hear just a little bit of the Sarabande, which follows the. The rondo, okay. if, if you'd like to just get a, a sense of what, what that is. Yeah, definitely. The Sarabande is much slower in, in character. What does that word mean, do you know? Well, it was a dance that originally had more of an emphasis on the second beat. It originated in what is now Spain and Portugal. So right. by the time Bach was, was writing this Sarabande, we don't hear as much a sense of emphasis on the second beat regularly. Okay. But that's that's something that, that we try to look for if we play a Sarabande that would allow that. Okay. You could imagine this in a court. There's a certain nobility to it. Yeah, definitely. A very regal quality. It's a very serious piece. Yes, and it offers great contrast with what has just come before. Mm-hmm. Which is very First playful. Of all, oh, yes, the, the uh, rondo, mm-hmm. and of course before that, the overture. Mm-hmm. Listen one more time now. This is the repeat. When you hear the trills, you'll hear how the Baroque flute is, not so much on that one, but the next one's, 
very hard to play in tune. Listen to this now. It's not what we would sound like on a modern flute. Yeah. But still very colorful. No vibrato on that long note. Mm -hmm. That's enough of that just to give you a taste, but also that that cadential trill had to my ear, my modern ear, a very out of tune, but nonetheless interesting quality. Yeah, there is a clash. Exactly. Sounds exactly. Uh, Yeah. And nowadays in flute playing, we try for a a quality of sound that's very homogeneous mm-hmm. from the, the very bottom of the instrument to the top. And in the Baroque era, on the Baroque flute without keys, it was very different from one note to the next. Mm-hmm. The quality of sound would change. Some notes would be not very well in tune. And people were used to that, used to hearing just a kaleidoscope yeah. of color, yeah. which is is so interesting when we listen to uh, Kalkin play, for example. You know, I never thought about that, but I'm sure that the you know back in box day, you know, uh, sort of um, manufacturing of instruments was very different. You probably had, you know, a, a dude in a in a <laughs> yes. you know sort of cottage making yes. things, and so you know, instruments probably you know the same instrument depending on which one you had probably sounded very different. Absolutely. And something that I find fascinating is that pitch varied from one city to the next. Whoa. It wasn't like A415 everywhere. It might be A420 or A412. So traveling flutists Uh had to carry a whole package filled with different corps de rechange, which in French means the body that you could exchange for the appropriate length. They were all different lengths, but really what's fascinating is that you you could change the pitch to suit the organ in the town where you were playing. Okay. So Wow. So that's that's what they tried to match was was the organ. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well you you've mentioned a few times and I haven't asked you yet, but now you're saying A fourteen, A four twenty. I've never heard this before. Oh. What is what is that? I know like, you know, the the E A D G B you know, the sure. scale, but I don't know. Sure. That. What that means is how many times it vibrates per second. Oh, whoa. So yeah. Here's A four forty if you're thinking ah I think uh. that's pretty close. Ah then Ah, if I'm singing it, that an octave lower is actually vibrating 220 times per second. That wow! It's it's all about acoustics and physics, and I am not a scientific person, but that much I can I can explain. But but musicians refer to these notes in that way. A four forty. Okay, that's right. Or if if a harpsichord is being tuned to four fifteen, uh-huh. that is roughly a half step lower. Okay. Roughly, my mind is blown. That is so it's it's so interesting, isn't it? (laughs) To be able to hear that is amazing to me. Right. So there's early pitch, 
and there's modern pitch. Mm. And A440 actually was agreed upon only in the 20th century because it varied from country to country. Uh-huh. Where do we go next in this piece? I'd like to just take little snippets of the next three dances. Let's hear Emmanuel Paru playing the bourrées. This is bourrée one and bourrée two. And the way this is is organized, the bourrée two goes back to bourrée one. And we'll just get a sense of that. So his tempo, interestingly enough, is exactly the same as Kalkin's. I, I loved to just compare the two great musicians yeah. and their differences in interpretation. This is, of course, doubling the violin. Uh-huh. So you can hear there's a wonderful blend, as you noticed, mm-hmm. in the, the tutti sections of the overture. You can also tell on this modern flute how clear and clean the trills are because mm-hmm. we have lots of keys to allow yes. us to play those in tune. Yeah. So this is the repeat of the second section of the first bourrée, and we're about to segue into bourrée two, which is the solo flute line. He's accompanied, as you can tell, by the two violins, viola, the bass mm-hmm. cello, mm-hmm. and the harpsichord. Or perhaps in this version, they're not using harpsichord. It's completely up to the players. Mm-hmm. Do we want to change the color and leave out? Uh-huh. On my repeats in Chicago, I took out harpsichord. And would, so, would Bach have been okay with that? Yes, would totally. He have just said, "Go at it as you as you like." It was it was commonly done to just use whatever instruments you cared to use. That's so curious uh, to it me. Is. You know, I, I'm sure there are other composers who would like that, but I would have assumed that any composer would be like, "No, you you know, you've got to play it like this." Here's Here's where this instrument goes. Here's uh, um, the particular instruments that should be gathered to play this piece. Bach is just like, ah, whatever you got around the house is fine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is that because of the period that he was writing in? Was yes. that Was that common? Okay. Yes. I see. Very much so. So after the bourrées is a polonaise. And this is a a very stately dance Mm -hmm. from Poland. And apparently, this melody was a Polish song. So what's interesting here, and let's go back to Bartolt Kauken to hear this polonaise. You will first hear the dance itself, and then you will hear what is known as a double or a variation on the dance. Okay. And this is the flute and the bass line. And it's so wonderful. You'll hear how ornate the flute line is. Mm-hmm. Very, very elegant in its in its uh, florid notes. Okay. So here is the polonaise. So you hear a very clear... Mm-hmm. 
almost square sounding yeah, it's very feeling. Choppy. Exactly. It's not fast. Two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Then the second section. And then this will also repeat. The end of the second section goes back to the theme again. But a change here. And here's the repeat. Different players do different things with repeats. I was noticing how Pau takes repeats on the da capo when he goes back to the first bourre. Kalkin yeah. does not. Yeah. So there are great differences of opinion. And Pau, of course, is a modern player, but he's a very intelligent musician and has mm-hmm. clearly done some studying on the style. Mm-hmm. Here's the double. Flute and cello. You hear the melody in the cello, uh-huh. and the flute is a descant or an obbligato over it. Isn't it great? I'm beginning to understand like why people might enjoy playing this music. Oh, it's it's so human. It's so alive. I grew up in Ithaca, New York, mm-hmm. and went to many organ recitals at Cornell University when I was very young. Mm-hmm. So Bach to me was just great music. Yeah. And as a, a piano student, here's the here's the return to the Polonaise, by the way the da capo, I played Bach inventions, Bach preludes mm-hmm. and fugues, Bach suites, so partitas for the, the, the keyboard. And young players learn from the pieces Bach wrote for Anna Magdalena Bach mm-hmm. and also uh, for his son uh, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach. Didn't he have something like some ridiculous number of children. He like did. 21 That's or correct. like that. Yes. Wow. And several of his sons became very well-known musicians. Uh-huh. Perhaps the most important was Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, yeah. often referred to as Emanuel Bach, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, the oldest as well. So the, the first two, uh, Friedemann Bach and Emanuel Bach, were the best known, but also Johann Christoph mm-hmm. Friedrich Bach and Johann Christian Bach. Okay. And he had a very tired wife. Two <laughs> wives, actually. The first, unfortunately, died in her uh, 30s, mid-30s. Yes, can, I, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine having that many children. Well, he, well Bach was off like, I got to go write some music. I'm, <laughs> I'm super busy. Can you take care of the kids? <laughs> <laughs> I think the older kids took care of the younger kids in that day and That's, age. Yeah. So following the Polonaise, we have a wonderful minuet. Let's listen to Bart Kauken play that. Okay. It's charming, isn't it? Very. 
And he takes a, a tempo that's considerably faster than Paru's. Mm -hmm. But you can still imagine people dancing in a court. Definitely. I can, you can see that in your head when you're... I can see it while I'm listening. And then I'd like to just hear the very beginning of the minuet uh, by Paru, so that you really get the, the feeling of this. Wow. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. You heard the pitch change, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with this tempo. I've played it at this tempo myself. Yeah. But it's, it's just to show how you can live with this music and mm -hmm. do it many different ways. Yeah, it's very, very uh, organic. And realize people didn't hear other people that well yeah. because there were no CDs. There were yeah. no radios. <laughs> yeah. They did their own thing. Yeah, neat. I like that. Okay, now we've come to the movement that ends the suite and that okay. I think many listeners will recognize immediately. This is called a bedinnery, and it comes from the French uh, verb badiner, which means to, to speak very playfully. And bedinnery itself means jesting, mm. so joking around. And I was really fascinated to hear the contrast in these two players' interpretations. Let's hear first Bartolt Kauken taking a much more moderate tempo. You still hear the jumping and joking <laughs> yeah. element of it? I hear the beastie voice, that's what I hear. Okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> Repeat, of course, of the first section. Uh-huh. Oh, so catchy. And it's interesting that after I performed this at the flute convention in Chicago, one friend came up to me and congratulated me for not having succumbed to entering the race. <laughs> I took it a little faster than this tempo, I think probably 120-something, uh -huh. just because I felt the character of this... That's joking enough. Mm -hmm. So some, some players add a lot of ornaments. I added a few, but what we'll hear with Paru's interpretation is much more florid in okay. terms of the ornaments. And clearly, Kalkin does not feel it's necessary. And I, I sort of struck a middle. middle okay course or found a middle ground for that yeah. because I, I think that you can add ornaments and still have the truth of the music. I, I can see how that, that particular little bit there could, could sort of lead you to want to like play it really fast exactly. to sort of rush through it because I bet it's really fun to play. It is fun to play and let's, yeah. let's listen to Emmanuel Paru having a lot of fun with this. You hear the difference in the flute, first of all, the articulation, the crispness, because it, this is gold. Yeah. Oh, it's a gold flute? Mm-hmm. Okay. Hear those ornaments? Oh, that's neat. Listen to this. Cool, huh? He's getting crazy.
Okay, the second time through the Badinery. Ornaments? Yes. That is You're so smiling, cool. Daisha. That is really cool sound. You can just tell it, he's having so much fun playing it. It's hard not to like yes, get into it. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Wow. That was that was just such a cool piece. I can't believe how many different um, moods and emotions that Bach takes you through in this one suite. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for introducing me to this piece. You're so welcome. I'm delighted that you enjoyed it. I And, and I really appreciate you coming in today. I know you're a very busy lady. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Everybody, that about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org backslash classroom where you'll find enough links uh, to how to listen to us and interact with us on social media that you will squeal with glee. Um, we're, of course, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. You can now also follow us on Twitter and Tumblr if you'd like to send me an email. It's dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org, or you can tweet at me on Twitter. I'm at ccdacia. Thanks to audio producer Todd Tobias Holslander for twiddling knobs today. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for his lovely fake British accent. Thanks to Leon Bicey for taking the time to be here today. Thanks to me for not giggling every time that Leon said tootie and also for saying words. But above all, thanks to you listeners for listening. We'll catch you next time. 